Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder. Today I'm chatting with Ruben Gomez. He's a longtime indie hacker, a SaaS expert, and an all-round treasure trove, both of knowledge and community support. He is wonderful. Ruben shares with me his approach to alternating between low-touch and high-touch during many processes, particularly the sign-up process for his software products. Then also what he thinks about the whole call to cancel thing and how he deals with much bigger competitors in his e-signature business. We chat about customer segmentation, if freemium is a good idea, and we'll even get into book recommendations today. A quick shout out to the sponsor of this episode, Acquire.com. More about that later. And now here's Ruben. Ruben, thanks so much for being on the show today. I recently talked to Brian Sirokowski on the show. And he was the unfortunate target of a lot of Twitter hate back then, uh, a couple of years ago, must be 2020, when he implemented call to cancel at Bear Metrics. It was yeah. a big day in, the, in the hacker community. Uh, feature. Yes. <laughs> Man, that was, that was rough. And the indie hacker community really didn't like it, right? It was just, there was so much going on there. Um, a few weeks ago, I saw you tweeting something, not necessarily the same, but along the similar lines where you said you occasionally change your sign up, which is obviously not cancel, but sign up from low touch to high touch occasionally, every, every now and then, which yeah. I found a similar move. And I was wondering, this was very intriguing and unexpected because I've never seen this done before. Can you explain the why and the how behind this particular approach? Sure. So um, we do this for... Uh, to get feedback, really good feedback, and to um, learn things. It's basically just data uh, and learning. So we understand that um, when we do this, when we change it, right now, just a little uh, to get a little context, um, people sign up uh, using a like sign up uh, with Google button, or they you know click on the link and they enter their username and password. It's really easy. They they're in. They're there's no email verification or anything like that. You, you get started, you can upload a document and then send it out to get signed. Um, so it's, it's at maybe a little bit, uh, not enough friction as far as we don't like even ask who you are, what's your use case, and you know th that stuff is planned. Um, but there are times where depending on the metric and the thing that we're trying to move or improve in the business – uh, we we try to get data through you know analytics through you know, support wherever we can get the data, uh, and then there's just times where we just don't have enough data or we don't understand a problem enough uh, to help move a metric. Let's say it's related to onboarding or uh, activation or uh, some other use case. Um, what we'll do is we'll change the sign up, and uh, when somebody you know we'll change it to a button, and they'll say like sign up for free, they click on the button, and instead of a sign-up form or, you know, the Google login thing, they'll go to a survey. Um, so then the survey uh, asks them questions about uh, what type of business they are. Like some of the initial questions that we're trying to um, segment by or, or understand, and then we'll ask them, like, let's say we're trying to target teams. We want to learn more about teams in the onboarding process. So we'll ask them how many people are going to use this. And if they say just me, then we'll redirect them to the self sign up and they'll just self sign up. So then we only, we only do this for, for the people that we want to learn from. Uh, and if it's a team, then we'll direct them to a, uh, basically a page to where they can schedule their onboarding call. Uh, to get set up and sign up. So we understand that we'll lose signups 
this is a temporary thing. Um, but the way that I think about it is that it's okay because we're paying for data. Like the cost, the price there is is us learning. And that's, that's how we're going to learn. That's an interesting approach. That the segmentation makes a lot of sense. I think that that very much shifts it in, in its similarity to the the full call to cancel thing. Because you know, if if Brian had kind of segmented call to cancel by yeah. the account type that was canceling, that would have been interesting too. That it probably needed, wouldn't have been right, right. That needed the special sort of like attention or or time or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that could have been one approach. I mean, we're I'm okay with just saying everyone. Like, if we needed to, I don't. Um, I don't know that we've ever done that. But if for some reason, if I felt like we needed to, I'm okay with doing that. For we get such a large number of, of people signing up in the um, twenty thousand, you know, uh, signups a month, and so it doesn't really take that much before we're like okay we're good <laughs> we can we've uh have enough people that signed up and we're going to learn what we need to learn from the, you know in in a few hours or whatever or a, a couple of days before segmenting it'll be longer yeah that that's the thing i that was wondering about like how long do you keep this going like for for how long would you do such a such an experiment does it, does it depend on the actual outcome of the the calls that you have or would you just set like a set time frame for this it really depends on how many people are going going through that. So I think the last time that we did it, we were we were wanting to learn more from people that signed up from a specific traffic source. So uh, we did interviews with them, uh, different types of interviews, but then we also wanted to learn more about them uh, in the onboarding process. So I think that one ran for like a week or somewhere around there, um, just because there was lower volume and we don't get that much from that traffic source. Um, and then, you know, just people will, they're going to be, depending on who you're targeting, if it's team, they're more, teams are more likely to, to schedule. If it's a traffic source to where it's just like a lot of, oh, it's just an account for myself, I like to do things myself, then you know a lot of those people are just going to look at that and be like, what is this? I Never. Don't, yeah, <laughs> no, I'm not going to schedule that. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like a like a cold email, but uh, in the in the form of a form on the website, right? Yeah. Like, nope, yeah. that is not a happening. A little bit, a little bit, and, <laughs> and there's a that selects for a certain type of user, right? So we understand that, like, you know, the learning there, it's it's just a data point, and and kind of understand how is that different from the typical user that that signs up self serve. That's that's very interesting. I, I never thought about this. I, I never thought about optimizing um, the process itself. Like I was always thinking that I could figure it out somewhere else, and then I would change the process accordingly. But changing the process to figure out how to optimize—that's just a, a new way of thinking about it. And I, I was wondering, like, as an indie hacker that I consider myself as, and that most people listening to this probably are more like. Um, when do you start with this? Because this feels like you kind of cut into your revenue a little bit, potentially. Mm -hmm. So do, do you need to have a certain size or like a, a certain MRR to start with this? How would you consider that? Well, when did you start doing these experiments? Uh, from the earliest days, I started really? like, from the very beginning. Even the landing page for the, for the um, before we launched, right? Like you put up a landing page and you have an email, like, uh, you know, enter your email to be notified. Uh, that went to a, to a, they put in their email, they submitted the form and that went to a survey. And then we asked more about them, their needs, why they were interested, you know, just to get a little bit of, B 
because they're the most engaged at that moment, right? It's harder once somebody signs up to send an email and you'll get some answers and replies to those, but they'll, they'll be a little light and different a lot of times. And sometimes you'll get in good conversations. Um, and then we, we asked, would they be willing to jump on a call with us to like, uh, you know, help us with some of the research on this. And a lot of people said, no, some people said yes. Uh, and then we added them to the early access list, but yeah. So before even launching basically is the answer. Um, and then a little bit, you know, after early on, especially early on, you, you know, the least about your customers, about the use cases, about all this stuff. So it's tricky because you're right. Revenue is, is, is a concern, right? So that's a tough thing to balance. And like the more you need the money, the more selective you have to think about that. Uh, the, the reality in, in SaaS at least is that very early on, most for most of us, we are just not going to make that much money. Um, in the, like the first few weeks or whatever. Right. Um, so you have to weigh that against like how many people are signing, like some people are launching and they're just getting very few people signing up, uh, to start with. And I understand the fear of like, well, putting this amount of friction up front, they're not even like, even the very few are not even going to be able to get into the product, uh, and experience it and have a chance to, to upgrade, I think um, I think uh, indie hackers shoot themselves in the foot sometimes with some of these fears like that. Because what tends to happen is, let's say they get uh, five signups a week or something like that, like, like a lower number. So they're, 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 they value each one of these. But maybe the traffic sources aren't that good and maybe the... Um, you know, the signups aren't of the highest quality. Some of them are, some of them are not. It's always a mix. And what happens is that people go in there and um, they kind of, it's, it's, uh, it's almost like they let, they remove all friction. They try to uh, let them sign up really easily and use the product and hope that they upgrade, but they're not learning anything in the process. What they learn is like, oh, almost nobody upgrades or very few people upgrade. Like, why, why is that? Like, they don't know. It's super fuzzy. Like all these fuzzy areas are a big deal and they're really important to learn as like as quickly as possible. And it's not a thing of like, well, let's go a few months. Let's add more like, yeah, but how much stuff do you not know? And if you knew some of those things, how much faster could you grow or add the right features that will help you grow? You know, it's uh, there is a balance there, but I would I would probably encourage people to uh, lean towards the direction that's a little bit more uncomfortable with some of this stuff for them. Yeah. Well, I, now that you say this, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Like you learn as much as you can as early as you can. That seems to be a very like a, a quick and uh, tight feedback cycle indie hacker thinking, and we should probably do much of that, more much more of that than we are doing right now. But does this also hold for exit interviews? Right? Does, would call to cancel actually make sense in this kind of line of thinking? But do, do you utilize, utilize it? Did you ever like, utilize it in any of your products? No. The 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 closest that I that I, I would I wouldn't be opposed to it if I if we were just not learning what we needed to. So we never got to that stage. Uh, we we've done so much stuff to try to learn from people that cancel. 
Um, and it's tricky because by the time they cancel, they don't really care a lot of the time and they're not like just, you know, uh, going to answer your questions and emails. They're done. They're moved on to the thing. Everyone's busy. It's not like personal. It's just, you know, we're all busy and everyone's calling for our attention and, you know, we have to protect our energy and our time. Right. Um, so yeah, what we did everything from, you know, they cancel, we, we email them, you know, automated, we email them, uh, manually and we search into them, let them know that it's, you know, the founder, all this stuff that, um, we, when they cancel, we send them to a cancel survey and, you know, they answer questions and some of that stuff is like, eh, useful. Some of it is not like not using, why not? Like a lot of, you know, a lot of the times they'll describe symptoms and, and not the, the core issues. Uh, and then the most useful thing was just cancellation um, interviews. Uh, and that's like in the cancel flow, I'm offering an incentive to do a 30-minute call with us uh, and then do a jobs to be done, like a switch style interview tour. We ask them not why you canceled, but um, what happened. We uh, Not like what happened, why did you cancel? More like um, when did you first start thinking like, oh, maybe I don't need this anymore. What happened that day? Do you remember the day? Like, you know, you basically walk through the actual events. And from that, you paint a picture. And then you you, you don't have to ask why. It's clear why, what happened. So that was, that's been the most useful. And that's as deep as we've gotten as far as trying to get, um, you know, information from people that canceled. Uh, the jobs to be done approach is really powerful, right? Because you you see the the underlying reasons, not not just the whatever in the moment happened that made them cancel, but you see what led to that moment, which which makes me wonder: Do you ever ask what you could have done to make them stay? It kind of feels like uh, asking people uh, if they want faster horses, you know that that yeah. thing. Like, yeah. But what do you think about that kind of line of questioning? Do you use that in your customer exploration? No, at all? Uh, because it's, once you once you walk through what happened, then it's really clear what you could have done to to make mm -hmm. them stay and why they cancel. The reality is in SaaS, a lot of the people that cancel cancel they cancel long before they actually canceled. Like oh, they just haven't gotten around to canceling. Uh, and then like they'll get an invoice or something like that that reminds them and then they'll kind of, like we've all kind of probably done that and we could think of like things that we're like oh yeah like I haven't gotten around to cancel that yet uh, you know um, and a lot of the times the core re it depends on the product of course so you have to but uh, it's surprising how, how many times the core reason really has to do with uh, with what happened up front like not not so much they were using it and then something happened and they're not happy and then they cancel. That happens, of course. But it's really like either they never truly started using it um, or they're like half using it and not completely in the way they intend, you know. Um, and that's why a lot of times time spent on activation and onboarding can, f can help uh, retention. That's a really big lever there. Yeah, it, it sounds it sounds like you want to onboard the right people and not onboard the wrong people. You know, <laughs> just give people this this uh, opportunity to to understand that either this tool is for them and they'll use it, or this is not, and they don't even get to not use it and then cancel. Am I getting this right? Uh, partly, like there's definitely that part of it for sure. Uh, but there's also um, if a lot of people that 
are the right users or could be the right users, but they didn't use it because, you know, uh, something was confusing or complicated or they didn't think they could do something like typical onboarding and activation sort of issues and problems that can be fixed and improved. So there's definitely a lot of room there for improvement for most SaaS products. Mm-hmm. How, how actionable are these interviews for you when you do them? Like how quickly do you turn those learnings into a, a change in the product? Uh, super actionable. We we uh, document all that stuff. And the way that we do it is I'll write. So I've done it a few ways and I'll talk about it like uh, in terms of like if if I was a solo founder almost like the, you know, or very small team. Um, and our team is pretty small as it is to begin with. But what I like to do is uh, do these interviews, record the audio. Uh, take notes in um, in Google Docs or whatever, and then I'll listen to the audio uh, at a separate time, like the next week or something like that, or the next day, and I'll go through and I'll you know with with uh, fresh ear or whatever you call it, um, I'll uh, document stuff and um, notice things that maybe I missed, and then put my takeaways organized that based off like, okay, this is actionable stuff that we could do based off this this one interview. Um, and what I like to do is I like to give that same audio recording to somebody else and have them, uh, you know, do the same thing separately and us not talk about it. So then I want to see what their takeaways is because are, uh, and compare them to mine because I have certain biases. And especially if when we're trying to improve like a thing or metric or something like that, we have these ideas of like, Ooh, we think it's this, or I, you know, I, like a direction that really can influence what we take away. Like there's the data and the information, but we're still translating that into actionable stuff, and our bias definitely comes into effect. So it's really interesting to see take somebody who doesn't have that bias and see what their takeaways are and then compare them to ours and see if we're like missing something. It's like, oh, okay, you know, there's something over there that I I probably should look at. And uh, the way that I've done it is somebody else on the team or uh, I've done it even to where I've hired uh, or have had a writer that was doing just like content for us, uh, you know, um, and asked him, hey, would you, uh, I'm doing this special project, would you be up for it? So it's not even somebody on on the team, like in, you know, as a core team, it's just like a, a contractor that that's helping us out with some other stuff. And if they're, you know, there's usually writers, uh, copywriters and all that are, are good about like the good ones, um, uh, paying attention to the information and then like uh, writing down takeaways and uh, having uh you know, asking them to to do that, and then seeing what that their report looks like compared to us, and just giving them some Interesting. guidelines. Interesting. That that actually sounds and feels like a, a product that should actually exist outside of just your organization, right? Like bias-free summaries. Mm. I was I was thinking as you were saying it, like you want to externalize it more and more away from the bias, the inherent bias in your team. Right. Have you ever used like AI tools for this, like a, a ChatGPT that would just summarize it with a no a prompt? Uh, no, I have not. Uh, that would be a really interesting uh, use for it, right? That's a good. Mm-hmm. That's even uh, maybe a better 
way. Not tr- <laughs> cheaper, not sure, but probably. Better. Right, definitely <laughs> cheaper. So now yeah. you could do that. I'd still probably, I'd do like, I'd probably do three. I'd probably do mm-hmm. uh, AI and then yeah. uh, have somebody else do it as well and then me, you know, because sometimes yeah. I think that, people uh, would, you know, pick up some things as well. It would be very interesting to see the differences. I, I, I think there's rarely a better way to see just how inherent your bias is and how maybe even you already kind of transported it onto the people that work for you. And then right. how there's a completely neutral yes. thing yes. that looks at it. Right. So yeah. that might be really cool. Wow, yeah. that, that's that's a very interesting approach to dealing with. with uh, it's a very in, uh, elaborate or involved. I don't know the which one of those two words I would use, but a very um, you take it very seriously. That's really cool to hear. Just how how valuable this information is to you. That is, yeah, that's I mean, awesome. uh, we use, and uh, you asked like how actionable and how quickly do we put into like as quickly as the next day we start doing stuff if oh, there's cool. stuff that's uh that easy for us to do and then some stuff is like a year later we're still referencing like we have these interviews from this you know segment here like oh it could be useful let's see let's refresh our memory and, and see what's there so we always come back to it and it's just like an evergreen sort of resource and sometimes it needs to be refreshed if it's been that long and the product has changed a lot you know depends that's very cool. Do you do these kind of interviews at other stages of the customer journey too? Like just post onboarding or in the middle of people using it for a couple months? Yeah. So uh, mainly like the switch style ones, like onboarding and cancellation is what we've done. Uh, a ton of those. And then um, sometimes we're, we are, you know, trying to learn something about a specific feature or whatever. And uh, we do those and try to follow the same structure i'd say that a little bit more like the mom test sort of uh approach there when we're doing it based off of like in the middle of let's say uh one of the ones that we added recently was uh bulk sending so the ability for people to upload a csv file we want signatures uh of 300 people um for this one template so some people would do that manually before we had bulk sending and then we added that feature but to learn um, how to create a good bulk sending feature, we we did that. We're like, okay, let's talk to the people who are doing this process and we interview them. Like, what's, okay, uh, what are the steps? Who are you sending this to? Why are you, you know, doing this? Um, and then walk us through it. And what do you do after? Uh, like the after, I think, is missed a lot and un- super underrated uh, and or before. Like the stuff around the edges and why are you doing these things? Like you can make your features much better based off of that information. Yeah, workflow is so important, right? Like a job to be done never stands alone. It's always right. integrated into some kind of series of other things. I've, I've, it's, it's to, to me, it's like if you're a software developer, you innately understand this if you deal with data. Data comes in one format. You do something with it, and the people like that use that what you do. They expect it in another format, or maybe the same, just with different data. Right. right. So you have an input format and an output format. I think the same thing should always happen with any job to be done. Like what data comes in, or what requirements come in, and what requirements ex- are expected on the outside too. It's really cool to see you thinking about this like before and after stuff as well. Yeah, uh, and same thing with triggers, right? Like triggers are a really important thing. Like what triggered this whole thing to to start with? Like that's an important thing to know and keep in mind. That's pretty cool. Do do you use the same playbook for both of your SaaS businesses? Do you do the exact same things, or is it different between BitSketch and Signwell? Um, we do a lot of the same things, uh, some things differently, but they're very different businesses. Uh, even though, like from a high level, I thought they were 
the same thing. It's just, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, let's talk about before that. Before I got into it, right? Like, that's a really easy trap to get into. It's like, yeah, it's, it's basically the same thing. Like, you're, you're, you have a document and you're sending it out and somebody looks at it and then they just approve or sign or whatever. And that's it. They both work exactly the same way. And these businesses could not be like any more different. Wow. Is that, I, I do want to talk about this, like with, with Signwell and where it came from, because uh, fr from what I understand, this wasn't even meant to be a second business. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was supposed to be the next version of, uh, of BitSketch and uh, BitSketch's proposal software. And um, like take everything that we learned, redesign it, improve it, add uh, document signing, which already existed in it, but in a very simple form and just say, let's open up the market and, uh, and then we'll have the whole document signing market as well uh, and support more of our customers' work, document workflows. And then we, we, let's start with the document signing and make that a different brand and build that. And then we'll have two sites we can funnel in and then we'll merge them. And, you know, there's this whole big plan. And then um, we did document signing and came out with that. And, like, the users were different. They were asking for different things. They were pulling us in a different direction. And uh, then there was just that decision time of like, uh, do I continue with the vision uh, that I had, like which is way different, which is different than what the pull that I'm getting here, or do we go in this direction? Went in that direction, and then uh, yeah, that's how I ended up with two businesses instead of one. <laughs> well, I'm still thinking it's, it's really cool to just stumble into a successful business, but I don't think there's uh, much stumbling. It's just you know it was there, and you you opened that door um, to to yeah, that well, particular. Yeah, we built avenue. it from scratch. We never promoted it to BitSketch customers or leads or traffic sources or anything like that. So it was literally building it from zero and building the whole. And I did that on purpose because I wanted to have to you know, like I said, it would it would be almost like two traffic sources and channels and everything just merged in into one. Um, but I never, you know, it just never became the, that thing. And so it was just a separate business built from scratch and having to have that whole momentum stage and, uh, built again, um, similar, but also very different. How, how long did it take you from like, thinking that it was going to be version two of what you already had to understanding that it's something completely different? Um, I think it was a couple of months to where I was like, uh-oh, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, that feeling. Uh, and mm -hmm. then it took a while before I just like settled, like, yeah, this is not going to happen. So I still had thoughts of like, no, we can kind of, you know, do this and still maybe like a year into it. And then after this, after that, I was like, nah, this is, this is not, no, this is a different thing. Uh, it's funny because I, I do wonder, like, you were already quite established in, I guess, the, the field of proposals, right? I think I, lo I looked at your blog, your blog post that kind of introduces the thing, the way you talk about it for the first time. I think your first blog post on that blog that you currently still have mm. is from 2009. So that's been yeah. around for a yeah. while, it's right? Been, and yeah, you talked been, about, yeah. and you, Right? You had ex already 10 years experience back then. Yeah. So um, you've been around for a while, but it, kind of you transitioned into uh, online signatures or e-signatures, which to me feels like a different field with much, maybe much bigger competitors, at least from my yeah. vantage point. Yeah. Much um, bigger was market that, and competitors. Right? right? Like yes. when, when you think about that market, you, you think of the, the big names and, and the things that enterprise businesses send around all the time. Was that maybe a reason that you hesitated to understand it as something that would stand on its own in that market? 
Um, no, I, that part of it excited me. Uh, so I like that part. Um, it was more, it was more about just like the vision that I had going into it and like having to just let, and I'm pretty good with just saying, well, you know, things are different and change. It was just more of a strategy, right? Like a higher level strategy. It was a little bit different than like, um, you think this feature is a good feature. So you build it. It's like, oh, they're not using it. Maybe it's not that good. Let's delete it or let's change it in a way like all that's been much easier and i think just from a all right this is how we're going to get to this you know milestone and we're going to open up the market and have like this higher level strategy and vision uh to where um sometimes that's easy to to change if it's you know but i felt really good about it and that's when it was just like it took it took a little bit of time you know for me to change (laughs) that yeah i guess yeah it's uh it's a mostly an internal thing too Right to kind yeah, of position yourself right. for that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, very, very cool. So, having big competitors like this, do, do you still consider yourself like an indie hacker underdog, doing like serving a, a very small niche in that market, or are you? Do you have ambitions? Maybe that's the question. Do you have yeah. gigantic ambitions to dethrone the the big big DocuSign or whatever is in the market? Yeah. So um, we compete directly with them. We get people switching all the time from you know. Uh, DocuSign, Adobe Sign, uh, the the big brands in our space. So, yeah, I don't. Um, we're not niche, and we're not. You know, we're pretty horizontal, and um, I like the way that we're competing. And I feel like there's a lot of opportunity here because of because of um, a lot of what they're doing, and because there's it's so tough to actually compete at the level to where mid market and larger organizations will will be okay with switching over to your service. It's really at the very low end for like freelancers and, and uh, um, you know, certain really light use cases. It's, it's, it's a product that a lot of people can build and get into. Um, but when you start to get into different pricing tiers and different types of use cases and organizations, then it's, then it's a different beast, and uh, it's really easy. I had uh, I talked to several founders in the e-signature space about um, because I, before I did the whole thing, just trying to understand like, should we even do this in the first place? Uh, what did they learn in the process? Like founders that had exited or founders that shut down their businesses that you know that had e- e-sign uh, experience, and uh, it sounded really tough. <laughs> I didn't understand why from the outside. It just looked pretty easy. I'm like, okay, we're kind of almost doing the same thing. I don't understand why it's so difficult. Uh, but the, uh, yeah, in the one that I talked to that had the most success in the space, just advised me, don't do it. <laughs> like he was already out. Wasn't even like right. involved. He was just like, yeah, yeah, it's a pain in the ass. Don't do it. Like, Is it that bad? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what were the challenges that made him say that? I I understand now, like it sounds simple. And he was talking about like workflow sign, uh, challenges, uh, challenges having to do with workflows and just, there's so many, there's so many, like there are technical challenges that are just kind of hidden and you won't know until you get to it. So there's a bunch of that and it's just very time consuming, but then there are also things that have to do with brand and, uh, you know, with like when people are talking um, 
things that have to do with uh, legal, uh, like that can be an important factor. So you have some stuff to overcome there. And then there's also security and compliance uh, things that uh, large organizations take, you know, take very seriously and can be a really big factor. Uh, so it's, it, it was really from, from several like perspectives, several things that, that uh, he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Is it a very price sensitive market? It can be depending on uh, who the customer is. It can be not always, but, uh, right. It, it's, like somebody, I saw somebody on Twitter talking about like, oh, I only use it um, a couple times a year. This like talking about, remember who it was t- on Twitter talking about um, how they would never pay for it. It would be a tough business and all that stuff. And it's like, yeah, we give it away for free f- for people like you. Uh, we have a free plan. Uh, it depends. There are many different customer segments. Yeah, your your free plan is, is something I've been eyeing here on the side for a bit. Like freemium, or I, I would assume it's freemium, right? Like uh, it's a kind of you you get the the good stuff once you upgrade, but you get the stuff that you need if, if even for free. Um, that's that's kind of always a you know, point of contention for many SaaS businesses, particularly as it is, you know, it's expensive sometimes to run a SaaS and having a lot of customers that you know uh, are a drain on resources. I think Josh Pickford, we, we talked about Metrics earlier. They had to shut down their freemium at some point because it was just destroying their service with all the data ingest through Stripe that they were doing, right? But before he sold the business, he had that, and I think he had something similar with maybe as well with the the next uh, business that he was in. Yeah, so. Uh, he- it's not in like for even uh bare metrics, right? Like very successful in the space was profit. Well, freemium, mm-hmm. not just premium, yes. not even like it was freemium free. the most traditional, like the whole thing <laughs> yes. was free. It's crazy. Uh, right. It is still, it's, yeah. it is very extreme. Yeah. Uh, super interesting strategy that they go, got going on. You can make it work. Um, the, question really is in not in every space but like is it worth it do you have uh the right strategy to make it work and uh should you even try to make it work and push through like especially for like a lot of indie hackers that need revenue for like early like for a while you will make less money most of the time on premium and i'm not sure that it's the best idea uh, a lot of times uh, to do, um, it depends on what your personal goals. Like if you're, you have a day job and you're like, okay, I need, I, I'm done with this and I'm doing this nights and weekends and I'm trying to get, you know, to where I can do this full time. It's like, maybe not like, unless there's a really good compelling reason, you know, to do it, to do freemium. Uh, and there can be, um, I, I would, I would lean, but I would lean in the direction for people in that situation to, towards not doing it. Yeah. I think everybody just hopes to be Dropbox at that point and have the kind of viral built-in referral loop that then gets more people on and some of them upgrade, you know, it's kind yeah, of this yeah. wish wishful thinking. Yeah, uh. and, and that's the thing, it's not really a um like the for in a lot of spaces the viral component part to it, you know, if it's there, a lot of times it doesn't even exist like ideally you'd have something there but if it's there it's it's overplayed it's not as effective as a lot of people um make it out to be especially if the space is more the more established the space and the more people the more um 
competitors and, and products are doing it already, the less effective it tends to be. So um, also the, the, um, the experience of the person who can share or, you know, who, who can kick that whole, whole thing off uh, is really important. And like, if, if they've experienced this thing before many times, they're less likely to be impressed in a way that would cause that to happen. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. <laughs> well, I don't know about e-signatures, but I certainly have uh, signed a, a lot of documents mm -hmm. in many different ways before. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I guess if it's a highly dis uh, disruptive uh, thing like Dropbox, which obviously could be built in a weekend. Uh, like in the er but, they're, they're always talking about the early days of that, right? Like it's different now than yeah, it was right. back then. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, it, I think, yeah, people, and that's the thing with these kind of strategies, like people only in retrospect see the value of these strategies, but they have moved on in many right. ways, right? All, all yeah. this viral loop chasing. Now we are looking at a world where the personal relationships between you as a founder of a SaaS business with your potential customers or their customers or their clients, like word of mouth becomes a much more interesting target for many businesses, right? Where sales is more, more person-led and not even product-led. Have you experienced anything like this as well? Uh, yes, in certain segments. So word of mouth is super interesting. I think people just like, uh, think about word of mouth as just this fuzzy thing to where it's like, it's uncontrollable and it just kind of happens and you just build something really good and great. And that kicks off word of mouth and the better of a job you do at that, the you know better your word of mouth uh, will be. And yeah, of course there's some element of that, but, um, the truth is you can understand word of mouth and you can you can um you can encourage it and you can uh you can you can do things to so um for example one of the things that the uh we looked at with with uh Seinwell was um certain certain uh we're horizontal so a lot of people can use us but certain um use cases and in certain industries uh we like how do those work so we're not going to niche the product but we want to understand from a marketing perspective how we can reach more people and uh and one of the things i mentioned before uh i think on twitter or somewhere was education uh so it's like okay we kind of like what's going on with education we're mixed on it right now because they're <laughs> the budgets are always low and uh you know so but uh we're like okay we've got a little bit of word of mouth how, how is that happening why is that happening uh so it was two things researching like our own customers uh and then the other part was researching the the space it's like how does education work going into what are the groups where they communicate and it's more about like not all of education. It's like, what are the sub-networks within this, this right? And how do they relate to each other? And how does, how does word of mouth work in there? And then analyzing smaller brands, smaller products, you know, things that are not well-known that have caught, you know, that caught on, that have started to spread that way. It's like, why did they spread? So, f like, in that research, we found that, Yes, their budgets are low, and because of that, uh, teachers sometimes have to buy their own stuff or do you know, so they don't have a lot of money. But 
when things are free, they really like to share those. And if things, uh, a lot of free things for education tend to be really crippled and not very useful. If things are free in a way to where it's like basically a paid product like uh, ProfitWell or whatever, then that gets really interesting to them and that gets shared a lot more. So we took our like paid product and we said for education, uh, for the next year, it will be free. Uh, and we went to certain groups and people and uh, that sort of uh, helped kick things off. And sure enough, like it started to pick up just like we'd seen with other with other products uh, in there to where they started recommending this school district that, this teacher that. And then, um, you know, eventually this is a long-term play because, you know, of course, uh, you have to charge at some point. Um, that, But that was just an example of like understanding Learning how word of mouth works in a specific niche um, and doing things to encourage that. That's very cool. Do you, do you run many of these outreach or even just research scenarios at the same time? Like, I, I do wonder where do the ideas come from? Who's doing the research? Like, how, how, do you, how long does it take for you to find that kind of information about all these companies? I usually do the research myself. Um, doesn't take all that long. Uh, so if it's like like for education, it's it's literally um, from interviews we learn from customers maybe uh, what groups they hang hang out on, uh, and then we research those groups. And it doesn't. Re it's really like a few hours to where you start to pick up. All you have to do is just do it long enough to pick up patterns. And you're like ah. Oh, okay, I see this pattern here, right? Um, yeah, and, and then from there, it's kind of like you coming up with ideas and things that you think will work and then trying them out. I love that you start with interviews, like that you actually have conversations with people. Because uh, like personally, I, I try to avoid uh, mm. these kind of things just because that's, I, I think, how I was socialized as a you know software person. You never talk to people. Like in the businesses I worked in, they never let our customers talk to us, to the developers. They always put like yeah, some yeah, marketing yeah. or customer right. service guy just out of fear that we would be honest with them. <laughs> you know, like probably that was that. I'll say the wrong thing, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of, they, they didn't train us either. They could have just trained us to have like the right, right. kind of a conversation right. with those people but they they put different people in front of us so i was cons consistently socialized that was back in germany i'm not sure if it's if it's all over the world like that but that's just that's where i come from um with, with the the work experience that i have not to talk to people so that kind of still feels like that even as the business owner i kind of try to shy away from that i try to find to source my information somewhere else mm -hmm. right not from a direct conversation yeah, or yeah. at least that that used to be the case now it's very different obviously being being very active on twitter and stuff that is people right that is interacting with people I can't like shy away from that anymore. But as a founder back in the day, before I was uh, active on social media, I would do everything to avoid those kind of calls. So knowing that you have to start there to get the information, even just figuring out where they go to their, their water cooler conversations, right? Yep. Where they have those, that you need to ask. You need to actually ask a human being. Right. That's, that's really cool. Do you have a script for these kind of things? Like, do you have a set script for these interviews or is it more of a flexible kind of conversation? Um, you know, it's, a it's a combination. It depends. Like if it's going to be like a really structured, like a uh, switch style interview, then we have those scripts from, you know, from that frame, from that framework. Um, there are a couple really good books on there that have a lot of great scripts, uh, on there. There's, uh, 
I mentioned it before. Uh, the mom test. test. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and then there is the other one that deploy uh, empathy. Yes, <laughs> that one. That one I'm really, really, really impressed with. Uh, yeah. And I bought it for uh, our customer success person. She really likes it. Um, what I like most about that one, I think, is the most helpful for founders. Uh, that I mean, it's just like the way it talks about it as an ongoing process uh, is is very, very, very good and a great mindset for people to get into. And then it just gives you the scripts and all the things to ask and how to ask and, and all that stuff. Uh, I think that that's that one's great. That is awesome. Yeah, like Michelle Hansen was the first guest on this podcast. Oh, yeah? I just want to point out how awesome she is. Yeah, she's and, uh, super sharp. She's great. She's she's spectacular. She she sent me like a signed copy of the book too. So I'm I'm over nice. the moon moon with yeah. the book. I I have multiple copies of it. And I think Rob Fitzpatrick was a guest on the show too. Okay. Like the mom test is nice. uh, the the older one out of the, yeah. I, I I'm so lucky to be able to talk to amazing yeah. people like them and yourself as well. Um, just b because the knowledge that he codified in the mom test and the knowledge that mm. Michelle Michelle, like she, she started this as a newsletter, just sharing her experience from doing all these many customer interviews back at Ge Geocodio, right? That it wasn't even meant to be a book. And then people just clawed at her, give us the book, give us the book. And it turned out that that's, that's how you write books nowadays, apparently. Yeah, yeah it's, it's super useful for those, uh, those of us who have a, not, not too um, an easy time talking to people. Those scripts are super helpful too. Yeah, yeah. So, I love stuff like that. Anything that's super actionable. Um, I remember reading Ramit Sethi's book, mm -hmm. uh, I Will Teach You to Be Rich. That was like um, probably my favorite part of it was where you would just call these companies like credit card company or whatever and he gives you a script. Just tell them this. And if they say... Um, if you missed a payment, just say, um, just say, can, uh, can you, um, you know, uh, get rid of the fee on that, the late fee or whatever, like nobody asks. Uh, so he has really simple things to just ask. And, uh, I remember for the first time calling and trying it out and it was like, Oh, it just works. Just ask. That's it. Yeah. Well, since, we're, since we're at the topic of books, do you have any recommendations for, for SaaS founders, indie hackers, I, I'm, I'm gonna go on a, on a really small tangent here because I, I recently looked into your blogs because I wanted mm. to see like your your latest or your oldest blog too, just how far back you you went. And I think you described the business you were founding as a a micro ISV. You know, yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, remember yeah. when you still yeah, called them independent yeah. Uh, yeah. software vendors software back vendors. in the day? Yes, back in the day, <laughs> that was, that that's, was that's, the, that's, the term. That's how far we've come, right? And and I think now we have books out like what Rob Balling's latest uh, book about about SaaS businesses. Yep. That's kind of what we call them now, right? Solopreneur SaaS businesses. If any right. any suggestions in the field for people who who may be struggling with the the things we talked about mostly, really like customer uh, interviews, we we have two recommendations there, but just yep. like even just uh, understanding how to implement these kind of processes mm. in their business. Yeah, I think uh, I'm glad Rob wrote his book. Walling, he's a he's a good friend, of course, and uh, but like the title of it has playbook in it for SaaS. That's literally what it is. Legit, it's uh, it's it's got a lot of the things that people struggle with. So I think that one, like, it's got to be. It's it's like uh, um, nowadays, you know, uh, it's one of the few because before it, was, it just felt like you just cobble a lot of books together, right? So um, uh, that one for sure. Let's see. I like very actionable ones. So, uh, so one that 
I try to push on people, but people don't seem to read it. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, it's really, really good. Uh, once you have a start to have a team or start to work with contractors or, or other people, um, it's called crucial conversations. Um, and it's like what it sounds like about having difficult conversations in a way that's very productive and, you know, um, not delaying those because a lot of times they just get delayed until things get really bad or whatever. Right. Uh, and just gives you a very specific framework on like how to handle these conversations. And I use it as a guide kind of like whenever I, I need to, I'll refresh my memory and write notes and then, you know, do it that way. So I think that one's super underrated and underused. Um, and I think it depends on the type of business that you're trying to build because different books will, be more useful for founders of different of, like if you have a sales led business, then I would look at something like the ultimate sales machine, right? There's, um, predictable revenue, which is like outdated and like, you know, not much of it is, is, uh, some of it applies, but not, you know, I wouldn't recommend that. Um, and then if you're like, uh, more product led, you know, there's the, I forget what it's called the the product led uh, book. It might even have product led in the in the title. Um, so it kind of depends on what you're trying to do. I like Ready Shoot Aim. Ready mm-hmm. Shoot Aim. Yeah. I don't know if you've read that one. Yeah, uh, I've seen. I've read that one. Yeah. yeah. So only like uh, I'd say like just read the first three chapters or whatever. Like you'll know when to stop on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just um, a type of mindset that is interesting that a lot of people don't do. Uh, I think uh, Great Leads on the, the copywriting side, a book called Great Leads is is really good as well. I love that for Ready, Said, Aim, you suggest just to start reading it and then decide if you should yeah. continue or not. Yeah. That's very much in the spirit of the book. Love that. And also, I'm, I'm really happy that uh, Crucial Conversations made, made it almost the top of the list here. Because it just shows like how much you care about communication in a team. Like that, that the fact that this is a recommendation to a to a you know software business owner it t- tells me a lot about how you run your own team. Um, now I think your team is around six or seven people, right? Like that's yeah, that's, that's right. currently the the size of the team. Do you still consider yourself like an indie hacker, like a, a solo bootstrapper, or was, was there a progression towards more like of a managerial position? Like, where do you see yourself? I, I know you have a team, and I know you lead it, but like, how, how does it feel like internally? Well, it's still a very small team, um, and everybody that joins the team needs to like be able to work independently, and and um, you know, like be able to own projects and contribute in a meaningful way. So it feels different than if I had a team to where it was just like, I'm there and they need direction from me at all times. And I am, you know, like a manager manager in that sort of way. Right. So there's like being a manager uh, and managing like task-based people. uh, And then there's um, kind of just leading a team and I feel like I'm, I tend to do that more than, you know, um, I do work with contractors to where then I become a manager to where I'm like, um, like for our marketing, we don't have anybody for marketing, but it doesn't mean we don't do marketing. We've done a good amount of marketing. It's just that I'll come up with a strategy. And then in the earliest days, I will do the work and I'll to try and get a feel for like how this, you know, 
goes and I'll spend the time and then it's like, okay, I think I got it. Uh, and then I'll write some stuff up and then I'll go to Upwork or wherever and hire somebody to help execute and then they'll do the execution, right? Mm-hmm. That sounds very indie hacker like to me still after all these years. That's really cool. I like that. That's that's kind of how you how you approach this. That you don't like over you know overgrow like start to have a team of hundreds or two hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. I, I recently had Jason Cohen on the show, and yeah. he like his business now has its own building, right? Like that's yeah, a yeah, different yeah. story. It's like right. thousands of people, and he seems to be fine with his role at the company that that he he founded and stuff. But uh, do you have similar aspirations, or do you just want to keep a small team and work on things that you like? I am. Uh yeah, so I'm okay with growing the team up to a certain size and then and then I'll see. Like I'm not overthinking it too much. You know, I'm sort of like enjoying the journey and then um making decisions. Like I have these ideas in my head about what what I like and enjoy and what things might be at a certain size. And I tend to like smaller teams. It's just me. Um but maybe when I get there I might say this is this is pretty good. There's a lot that I'm learning. I'm growing in a, in a specific way that where I want to keep going, or maybe not, maybe uh, I'm like, okay, time to bring in a CEO, somebody else to drive this thing. And then I'll figure out if I'm, you know, what my role is there or not, you know? Yeah. That, that sounds reasonable. And I think that's exactly what Jason did too, right? Like mm -hmm. he hired a, a CEO for WP engine and the company is doing great and he doesn't have to do the CEO stuff, the stuff he doesn't right. like, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's perfect. I I, re I really hope that you get to en enjoy this journey for as long as possible because you've been, not not only have you been enjoying it, hopefully, for, for a long time, you've also been sharing a lot about it. You've been like sharing your insights into this, not just on podcasts, but also on Twitter. Do you consider yourself somebody who's building in public? Is is that is that something you you feel you're doing, or is is it, is it not enough for that? Because you share a lot, but it, it doesn't feel like very, you know, very forced. It's just whenever you feel like it, you you kind of share yeah. stuff. Um, is, there is no, there is no. I'm um, I'm never thinking about uh, about it as share, uh, building in public or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's just um, it's very free form. It's like I'll share something that I think others might find interesting or that I've been thinking about or some, you know, podcast or something like that sparked the mm -hmm. thought. And I'm like, ah, yeah. okay. Like, let me, I need to like say this somewhere. And that's like, yes. you know, a good place to say it. So that's kind of I, how I approach it. Well, I, I love that. And I'm a big, big fan of your social media content, obviously. Like you, you never cease to um, post enjoyable and thought provoking things. So if, the listener or viewer of the show would like to find you on the World Wide Web. Where would they go? Thanks. Um, Twitter, basically, or X, X. I guess now. Like, is this like? Did we just dead name yeah. Twitter? Is that, yeah. This just happened. Uh, shoot. Um, yeah, Earthling Works. That's who I am on there. And then uh, for, of course, document signing needs, signwell.com. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Ruben. That was really, really insightful. Thanks for sharing all your little insights and the uh, strategies that you have for running these really cool businesses. Uh, I'm very, very grateful. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the invite. And it was great uh, talking to you. Thanks. And that's it for today. Ruben talked a lot about building solid SaaS businesses, even in spaces where there are gigantic competitors. And a lot of founders end up in those kind of places. And that can be a lot. There's a way to capitalize on that position without having to fight your way out of it. 
let me introduce the sponsor of this episode, Acquire.com. Imagine this. You're a founder who's built a really solid SaaS product. You acquired customers, and all of this is generating consistent monthly recurring revenue. The problem is you're not growing for whatever reason, lack of focus or lack of skill, just plain lack of interest. You just feel stuck. Maybe there are big competitors around. You don't know what to do. The story that I would like to hear is that you buckled down, you figured it out, you reignited the fire, you get past yourself the cliches and you start working on your business rather than just in the business as people always say. You built this audience you always needed to build, you move out of your comfort zone, do sales and marketing, you just do everything, right? In six months, you've tripled your revenue, everybody's happy. Reality is not that simple. And situations are very different for each founder who's facing this crossroads, but too many times, all stories end up being stories of inaction and stagnation until that business becomes less valuable or worse, worthless. So if you find yourself here or your story is likely headed down a similar road, I can offer you a third option. Consider selling your business on Acquire.com. Capitalizing on the value of your time today is a smart move. Acquire.com is free to list and they've helped hundreds of founders already. It's really a good idea to just check it out. So go to try.acquire.com slash Arvid and see for yourself if this is the right option for you today. Thank you so much for listening to The Woods of Founder. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L and you'll find my books at my Twitter course there too. If you want to support me and the show, please visit the guest that was on the show today. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, get the podcast near player of choice, and leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. Any of this will really help the show. So thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and see you around. Bye-bye.